Yes. Hey, hey. Look at me. That's wonderful. Those guys are so adorable, aren't they? Uh, if you had that white sweatshirt on that Jeremy was wearing, how long before you spilled on it? 15, 20 seconds, I would say, in my life, whenever I try and wear something white before I spill something all over it. Uh, fall retreat's coming up. Uh, we'd love for you to sign up. We'd love for you to go. I know the speaker, he's going to be amazing. Uh, there's just a lot of great activities planned for that time. So sign up and be a part of fall retreat. We are in the middle of a series called Creation and the Cross, and today I want to invite you to make sure you get out your Bibles, get out your Bible apps, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. The verses are not going to be appearing on the screen. I'm warning you ahead of time. Uh, So if you want to follow along, uh, if you can find something, Google Genesis chapter 3, whatever it takes in order to get to that chapter, uh, that would be great. I love the a graphic that our new graphic designer Lexi has come up with for this series. It really represents the movement that we are talking about in Genesis 1 through 11 here. And it particularly represents the movement we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are over on the far left side. They are in this absolutely perfect paradise. We're told that the garden that they're in not only is producing everything that they could possibly need, but that it's also beautiful. It's also just a a gorgeous place to live. Every kind of provision they could ever need is being provided for them. On top of that, Adam and Eve are living in perfect unity with each other within the marriage relationship. And maybe even more important, they're living in total and complete communion, perfect communion with God. So so you have a perfect surroundings, perfect relationship with each other, and perfect relationship with God, all that's going on in Genesis chapter 2. And and there is this last verse of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, that says, they were naked and they felt no shame. What is that about? Being naked and not being ashamed. It isn't about the fact that donuts and ice cream hadn't been invented yet. What is being naked and not ashamed about? about the fact that there's no sin. Shame is about sin and self-focus. At this point, there is no sin and they are entirely focused on how they love God and love the other person. And so there's absolutely no shame for them. But as chapter 3 comes about, we see Adam and Eve teetering right on the line between the scene on the left and the barrenness in the middle. What is it that's going to lead them from paradise to wilderness? And is there any hope for them once they're in that wilderness? That's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 3. So let's start in verse 1 that says, Now the serpent, a new character, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is not a, a statement about snakes in general and their craftiness. This particular serpent was more crafty than anything else that God had made because Revelation 12, 9 and chapter 20, verse 2 identify the serpent as Satan. Satan is here appearing in the garden as a serpent in order to bring about temptation in Genesis chapter 3. And his temptations are crafty. Look at verse 2. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No. What did God say? 
God said you should eat of every tree in the garden. Isn't that what God said in the last chapter? You should eat of absolutely every tree in the garden except this one. But Satan comes and he starts his temptation by saying, God, so oppressive. So many rules. Did he really say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? This is a regular strategy of Satan in order to add rules to what God has already said in order to make him seem unreasonable. Jesus says about the Pharisees, you are children of the devil because you tie up heavy bundles and put them on people's backs and don't lift a finger to help them. Those heavy bundles were all of those extra rules they were putting on people. And this has been a regular strategy of Satan from the beginning of time to add a lot of extra things to what God said in order to confuse and muddle and make God seem unreasonable. Well, Eve is going to correct Satan, but when she does, she plays a little fast and loose with the word of God. Verse verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She follows Satan's lead here, doesn't she? And she actually adds to what God said. God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, yeah, we're not supposed to eat of that tree or what? Or touch it. Did God say that? No. Right? She's playing a little fast and loose with what God said, and she's now adding to what God said. Not only that, she minimizes the punishment God said would come. God says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And she removes that word surely entirely as she talks about this. These are both, again, strategies of Satan to add to what God said in order to muddle and confuse, and second, to minimize the punishment or discipline that comes from sin. And both of those things are happening here. When we look at how Eve handles what God said, we are reminded God's word is important. And we are to be diligent in knowing it and careful in how we handle it. Let me say that again. God's word is important. And we are to be diligent in knowing it and careful in how we handle it. Shallow understanding of the word of God leads to wrong thinking. And so Jesus calls us as his disciples to obey all that I commanded. Do you know what has to be necessary to obey all that God commanded? To know all that God commanded. You can't obey it if you don't know it. And so Jesus tells us, dig in. John Wesley regularly used to refer to the church as the people of one book. That that was his phrase. He always said it in Latin. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, right? But that's what he referred to the church as. They are the people of one book. It didn't mean they weren't supposed to read any other books. What it did mean is that their minds and hearts were totally devoted to the revelation that God had given in order to know him more. And that's us. We are a people who want God's revelation. And we dig in, we're diligent about knowing it, and we're careful in the way that we handle it. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan senses Eve's wavering a little bit here and now he goes full frontal in his attack on God. The phrase, you will not 
die, I'm sorry, you will not surely die, actually has the word not at the very beginning. And so in the Hebrew, it is you will surely die with a great big not in the front of it. Here's what God said last chapter. You'll surely die. And Satan throws a great big no you won't at the beginning of that sentence. Not. It won't happen. He is calling God a liar. He, he just, God just puts these rules in place, Eve, to keep you down. He just wants to control you and manipulate you. What you really need is freedom and autonomy. What you really need is to go ahead and, and take that fruit and eat it so that you don't have to listen to God about what's right and wrong anymore. Now you can understand and determine for yourself what's right and wrong. Come, come on, be autonomous. You, you don't have to live by his rules. They're just repressive. You can be the arbiter of what's right and wrong. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for, fruit, for food. Okay, I want you as we listen to this to be thinking of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. That says the world tempts us through what? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And look at how we see them here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, it appeals to my senses. It'll make me feel good. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Oh, it looks good to me. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Oh, I'll advance. Pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also, get this, gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. This is the ultimate picture of how temptation works. God gives us a particular command, and yet there is this little voice that says, oh, but, you know, if, if we do that, I think it'll feel good. It, it sure looks good. Oh, I feel like it might advance my own name and reputation a little bit if I do that. People might think more of me. And it creeps in and pulls us away from the command of God. In that section, at the end of verse 6, I think we see the weakness of Adam in this situation. The weakness of Adam. Adam was the firstborn. God made Adam to lead and protect in situations like this. The fact that Adam was to be the one who was to lead and be responsible can be seen when God comes back to the garden in order to hold somebody accountable for what has gone on. Who does he speak to? Right? He speaks to Adam, who is the firstborn, who is the one who is responsible to make sure that this couple continues to move towards God and doesn't give in to temptation. And yet we see here in verse 6 the phrase, he was there with her. It implies he, he stood by passively and watched this entire temptation scene where Eve was tempted by the serpent. And then, after having watched the whole scene, not interjecting, not defending, not leading as he was designed... He jumped in once Eve had eaten of the fruit and didn't die physically immediately. And when she offered it to him, said, well, okay, you look okay. Great. I guess I'll participate too. The passiveness from the man who was meant to lead is appalling in this passage. And one of the primary ways that Satan desires to break down the home 
is through men who refuse to take their responsibility to lead their families towards relationship with God. Boys who get older chronologically but never grow into men, leading their families, protecting, defending their families from temptation, but leading them into spiritual relationship with their God. Adam is a terrible example here. And as men, we can't allow this kind of passiveness to be true in us when it comes to leading and guiding our families towards relationship with God. When Adam and Eve both ate, what happened? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now there's shame. Now there's been sin. Now they're self-focused instead of God and others focused. And now they experience shame and they want to cover up. And they start trying to use vegetation in order to cover up. And just as they are finishing their leafy clothes, God appears in the garden. What's often referred to as a theophany or a physical presence of God within the narrative, in verse 8 we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God appears in the garden and they try to hide from him. Right? Good luck with that. Best of, of luck with that. Sin brings shame and it damages our relationship with God. We hide from him. Right? Sin brings shame, and it damages our relationship with God. We hide from him. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God, God wants to give them every chance to come clean. And so he's going to ask them a series of questions here, giving them every opportunity to confess what has taken place. Will Adam do it? Verse 10, And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Wow. I think every word of what Adam said there is true. And yet he is burying the lead, isn't he? Read that again. I think every word of what Adam said there is true. But he is leaving out the big news that we chose to do the one thing you told us not to do. That we chose to rebel against you, that we chose to disobey. All of that gets left out. God's response, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Sin is terrible and it needs to be confessed. And God gives him opportunity here to cry out for God's mercy in this situation. Right? Will Adam own what he has done and cry out for God's mercy? Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you have given to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam blames the woman, and God for what has taken place here. So God asked Eve, Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames the serpent. And ever since this time, the sinful way to handle sin and mess has been to blame others, to look around for others who have greater faults and point to them. Sure, I'm a mess, but look at how much bigger mess they are. They're the ones who are the real problem in this situation. Ever since sin entered into humanity, the sinful way to handle sin is to blame others and look around for others who have a bigger mess than we do and focus on that. Jesus' way to handle it is to look at what is in our own eye. 
to focus on ourselves, our own brokenness, confession, seeking righteousness in our lives. Now God is going to pronounce some judgments that come from sin. First upon the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first proclamation is that Satan will be lowly and defeated. Throughout the Old Testament, pictures of crawling on your belly, pictures of eating the dust or the dirt, are pictures of defeat. If you look at passages like Psalm 72.9 or Malachi 7.17, eating dust is a, is a symbol of defeat and humiliation. And God pronounces over Satan, the serpent, you, you are defeated and you will be humiliated. And the victory that is proclaimed here in Genesis 3.15 at the very beginning of the Bible is proclaimed so beautifully in verse 15. He says, there will come an offspring. And the combining of the singular offspring in the Hebrew with the word he here in the Hebrew implies this is a person. Not offspring in general, but there will come a son. An offspring who will come. You're going to bite his heel and he is going to stomp on your head. And this is the opening declaration of the gospel. Here in the first pages of the Bible, the hope of the gospel is seen that runs from Genesis through Revelation. Ultimate hope given to us because the sun will crush the head of the serpent. We're going to look at that hope in greater detail in just a minute. But first, let's continue to flesh out some of the consequences that come with sin. Starting in verse 16, when God speaks to the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the first half of the statement, we find out that the joy of bringing children into the world is now going to be accompanied by tremendous pain. Right? Is that true? Is there pain in childbearing? Some of you are saying yes. But I, I would contend that it isn't just childbearing that became painful when sin entered into humanity that pain entered into all of creation in general. And I say that because if you read Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and the description of the new Eden that God makes for his people, that new paradise, we are told that within that paradise there will now be no more crying and no more pain. Right? Because pain is a result of sin. That new sin-free dwelling will be pain-free. Physical pain, emotional pain. None of that will be present within that new reality, and none of it was present in the original paradise that God made until sin came about, and then pain entered into humanity. And it's specifically referenced here as it, as it relates to the bringing forth of children because that's the command God has just given them. Hey, I want you guys to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And then he tells them, oh, and by the way, now that you've sinned, that's going to be hard. That's going to that's be challenging. But it's the second half 
of God's proclamation here, the result of sin that I want to focus on. Because it's there that God says, you have made a mess of the beautiful relationship that I designed in the last chapter. That beautiful picture of marriage at the end of Genesis chapter 2, because of sin, it's now all going to be an ugly mess of selfishness. When God made a man and a woman to be husband and wife, his design was that they would perfectly fit together to complement one another. They wouldn't be the same. They would be a perfect fit, a perfect complement to each other. Look, at, look back at Genesis 2.18, one page over. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Right? That word for helper there is used on a few occasions in the Old Testament of God when he was the helper or provider of Israel. When he gave Israel exactly what Israel needed at the exact time that Israel needed it, he was their helper. And in a sense, when the woman was made, when Eve was made, she was exactly what the man needed at exactly the time that he needed it. She was the helper who brought a fit to him. That Hebrew word for fit means to be a complement, a completion, a partner. The idea here is if you've ever worked a puzzle and you've got a couple of pieces that you're playing with and suddenly you realize, oh, they link perfectly together. Right? Have you had that experience in your puzzle making? Yes! Look at they fit perfectly together. They're not the same puzzle piece. No, that's not the design. The design is that they fit perfectly together. They complement each other. God made this complementary couple in which the firstborn man was bigger and stronger and was to use that strength to protect and provide for his wife. A wife was to seek to care for her husband and to flourish under his loving leadership that constantly sought her best. But when sin came in, that perfect relational design was thrown to the side and men and women became selfish within their marriages, constantly seeking what they wanted. Verse 16, the wife will desire not to compliment, but what is, it says, contrary to her husband. The Hebrew here is an exact parallel, if you look across the page, at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Some of your Bibles uh, say that her desire will be for her husband. And it's an exact parallel of chapter 4, verse 7, when God is confronting Cain, and he says to him, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is to have you. Right? Th those are exactly parallel in the Hebrew. What is sin's desire to have Cain? It desires to control him. It desires to rule over him. And in that same sense, God is saying that once sin entered into the picture, a wife's desire is going to be to have her way, to control her husband, to rule over her husband, get her way through nagging or manipulation. But because of sin, husbands, instead of using their lives to love their wives well and seek what is best for them, will instead domineer over their wives. The word for rule here is a word that means to rule 
harshly. As a matter of fact, go back to the exact parallel in Genesis 4-7, and we see sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, and he says to Cain, but you must master it. It's a word for having complete and authoritarian control over something. You must master it. And that is what God says is going to happen within marriage because of this mess of sin. Husbands are going to inappropriately use the fact that they are bigger and stronger. Instead of using it to protect and provide as designed, they will use it to get their way, domineer over, and even abuse those women that they're married to. Right? Do we see any of that? Is that not the picture of so much of what is experienced in marriage? But friends, uh, there's hope. There is hope in the verse before. Right? Where is the hope? The hope is in verse 15. The hope is in the fact that the serpent came and the sun crushed his head and has brought redemption to all of the mess that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And he hasn't just brought individual redemption to you. He's brought redemption to relationships. He's brought re redemption specifically to the marriage relationship. You, that is what Ephesians chapter 5 is all about. I think sometimes when Ephesians chapter 5 gets read at weddings, we go, oh good, there's the marriage passage in the Bible. And... Okay, that's fine. There's a sense in which it is. But if you look at the whole scope of the book of Ephesians, the entire second half of the book of Ephesians is about how God redeems relationships when he redeems us. That there is no redemption of individuals without redemption of relationships. So look at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. It says, when you are redeemed, you won't lie to each other anymore. You won't steal from each other anymore. You won't harbor your anger towards each other until it turns into bitterness. You won't speak unwholesome words toward each other, but instead words that build each other up. You'll be forgiving and kind towards each other. Chapter 6, here's how the redeemed relationship works out in parenting and being a child. Everything is about how the redemption that God brings into our life redeems the relationships that we're a part of. And Ephesians 5 fits into that grand scheme of redeemed relationships by saying, here is how Jesus Christ redeems the marriage relationship when he is active in your life. Instead of wives who are seeking to have control over their husbands and seek things that are contrary to their husbands, Jesus redeems wives who are following their husband's lead and supporting and caring for him each day. Instead of husbands who are seeking to domineer and get their way or sit back passively like Adam, you have husbands who are actively loving their wives as Christ loves the church, every day giving up their own life in order to do what is best for their wife. And the picture of Ephesians 5 is such a beautiful picture that God says in that section that when we live the redeemed marriage relationship, it draws attention to the greatness of Jesus' relationship with the church and the gospel. When people who claim the name of Christ live the marriage relationship according to the way of the curse, it damages God's reputation and damages the gospel. But when the redeemed people of Jesus live out the redeemed message that Ephesians 5 talks about, it shows the glory of Jesus Christ and expresses the gospel.
of what he has done. Jesus crushed the head of the snake and the curse of sin has been defeated in our marriages so that we are being redeemed. We are being redeemed in our marriages. But that isn't the only part of the curse we see in Genesis 3 that is being redeemed by the work of Christ. Look at the next section of Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, creation has been cursed, and we don't live in the paradise we were intended to live in. It's not hard to look around and see that that's true. Work is hard. That wasn't the original intention. The world is broken. Natural disasters, human disease, failed crops, all a product of what sin brought about in Genesis chapter 3. But because the Son of God came and crushed the head of the serpent, the creation has a promised redemption. All of the creation has a promised redemption. If we were to look at one passage in particular that is about this redeemed creation as a whole, where would we go? I think it's probably seen most clearly in Romans chapter 8. And if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility. What is the current creation that we live in? It's been subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. What can we know about the current, current creation? It is in bondage to corruption. It's futile, it's corrupt, what we see around us. But it is seeking to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Right? What is the beautiful picture here? That we live in this futile and broken creation, but there are labor pains going on. And eventually there will be the birth of a new child. And that new child will be a new heaven and a new earth that are totally free from the curse of sin as we see it in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Could anyone stand in existence like that? Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Then in the next chapter, the final chapter of the Bible, describing that new creation, no longer, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. It's hard for us to imagine because this is the only creation that we have experience with. But what the Bible communicates to us is even the greatest, most majestic, and grandest experiences that we have had within this creation are a beat-up, rusted-out Ford Fiesta compared to the amazing Audi R8 creation that is to come. And it is hard for us to imagine the difference there is between this cursed reality that we live in and the reality free from the curse that we will experience. God is redeeming the creation, and because the Son 
stomped on the head of the serpent, it will be made new one day and we will enjoy it in new bodies forevermore. Now at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we see a foretaste of the grace of God poured out on this couple. Uh, This couple who has just rebelled, this couple who has just sinned, this couple who has just messed everything up. We see God immediately treat them with grace in Genesis chapter 3. Look at this. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. First of all, we see God's grace poured out in his provision of garments for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced shame, and in order to try and cover over the shame of their sin, uh, they tried to make some garments out of leaves. You can imagine what that must have been like. And God says to them, you guys, no, those garments of leaves are not going to cover over the shame of your sin. It's going to take sacrifice in order to cover the shame of your sin. There's going to need to be the shedding of blood in order to cover over the shame of from your sin. And so God sacrifices these animals and he makes garments for them, for those who just betrayed him, because he is a gracious and good God. Because they deserved it? No, because he is gracious and good. We see God's grace expressed in the fact that Adam and Eve's lives continue at this point. What did God say? When you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And while the moment they did it, they died spiritually, separated from a holy God by their unholiness, they did not immediately die physically. God was gracious to them and gave them years in which they could repent so that one day they might have a new and different life beyond this one. And so we see God's grace. What what they deserved is the moment they committed that first sin, They should have immediately died spiritually, died physically, been brought before their judge, condemned, and eternally punished for their sin. But God is gracious. And he gives them these years for repentance. God's grace can also be seen in removing Adam and Eve from the garden where the tree of life is. Yes, this is a part of the punishment for sin, But it is also God's grace poured out in this particular situation. There is nothing worse than to live forever in this brokenness. And so to come back and eat from the tree of life so that you might be able to continue to sustain living within this broken and messy creation, within these broken and messy bodies, within all of the broken and messy relationships that come from sin, God says, that That's not the paradise I made you for. And so I am going to give you the gift. Listen carefully to me. I'm going to give you the gift. Yes, it is also the punishment for sin, but I'm going to give you the gift of disease and death so that you do not need to live forever in this mess. 
but it can transport you beyond life in this world back to the paradise with me that was intended. And so God in his grace cuts off their life on this earth so that those who repent and trust in him can live in all of the paradise that he originally designed rather than living forever in all of this mess. He is a gracious and good God. And yes, disease and death are a result of sin, and they are also his gracious gift to us so that we might be with him. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain for us. He's been so gracious to give us that gain beyond this life. This is all a picture, just a tiny foretaste we see of the astounding grace to come. His little bit of grace to this first couple who rebelled against him is all just a foretaste of what Jesus would do on the cross in order to give grace to me in my rebellion, in my mess, to you in your rebellion and in your mess, that we could have new life because Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. That we could be free from sin and shame because Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. That we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ because Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward at this time. And as we prepare to take the elements of communion today, I would particularly invite you to stay focused on this idea of what the offspring did. He took the bite to the heel, taking on sin and punishment so that ultimately evil and the evil one would be defeated so that we might no longer live in sin and death but might have victory in Jesus. And I'd encourage you to be focused on that as we prepare to take the elements together. The elements are in all four corners of the room, and when you're ready, you can get up and go and get those and bring them back to your seat, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements uh, after a couple of songs.